Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm Tony Giddens, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening to discuss the new book by Professor Bhikkhu Parekh, which is called A New Politics of Identity. And this is a book which everyone in the audience should have. Therefore, <laughs> Professor Parekh is signing copies outside of the door there for those of you who can fork out to buy one. Professor Parekh is one of the most famous writers on multiculturalism in the world and was responsible for the Parekh Report a few years ago on multiculturalism in the UK. His new book, as she's going to describe to you shortly, is about the issue of identity in, in an age of globalization. And um, it, it's one of the fundamental issues, I think, of our time, how you sustain identities, how you create coherent societies in a world of very rapid change when global forces are impinging on all of us. You want the answers to those questions, they're all here in this blue book. And we're fortunate to have two very distinguished panelists with us. On my right, Professor John, oh, no, on my left, <laughs> Professor <laughs> John Keane, <laughs> um, also very, very well known indeed for his writings on democracy and many aspects of political theory. John is Professor of Politics at the University of Westminster. And on my right, um, we have the editor of Prospect magazine. Um, I think it's true to say, David Goodhart, I think it's true to say that this is, not, this is not a very intellectual country, the UK. So having made a success of an intellectual magazine is no small accomplishment um, for David. And um, again, this is on sale at all good <laughs> booksellers, not just outside the door, but in every um, bookseller, including W.H. Smith, I think. Well, we're going to give, I um, don't know, about a quarter of an hour or so to Biku to sketch in the basic ideas in his book. I'll then turn to John, um, who is going to um, speak for about a quarter of an hour too, and then to David, finally. And then I'll probably give five minutes to Biku just to respond to his critics. And then we'll open up um, the floor for discussion. I think we've got until around about eight o'clock or quarter to eight or so for the debate. So I'm very happy that Biku is at the LSE. And um, I now turn over to him. Please give him a nice LSE welcome, if you would. supposed to turn off your mobile phones, by the way. Well, uh, thank you, Tony. Uh, I can't let you off that easily. And uh, the original idea was that we'll have three panelists, and Tony Giddens was going to be one of them. And I think for some reason, uh, there was some miscommunication at some stage, and Tony uh, ended up chairing the meeting. But what I'm going to propose with your consent that he should not merely chair the meeting, but also be a panelist. And I can't think of anyone here who can play two roles with equal ease. So, Tony, you are not just well, going to Well, I said Biku had panelist. to make a joke in the beginning of his lecture. That is, <laughs> that is his joke. It's not the best one. So, as so a good Democrat and advocate of the third way, <laughs> uh, I think you are subject to the will of the majority, which is that, which is that after the two panelists have spoken, we'll have Tony Giddens as well, and then 
Assuming that there is any time left, I shall respond to the comments. First of all, I want to begin by thanking uh, the uh, LSC for organizing this. I came here in 1959 to do my PhD with Michael Oakeshott, and I stayed here for four years, and I am pleased to be here after nearly 45 years. This place has wonderful memories, because this is the hall where Michael Oakeshott used to give his lectures on history of political thought. I also want to thank the Center for, the, for uh, Global Studies, which is where uh, uh, I spent two years as a centennial professor between 2000 and 2002, and uh, I conceived much of this book during the time that I was here, so I want to thank the Center for Global Governance uh, for their hospitality during the time that I was here. Now, basically, uh, since not many of you might have read the book, uh, I, rather than summarize it, which will take a long time, I thought what I'll do is just to indicate to you what I was doing uh, in the book. Basically, I'm concerned to ask how globalization has impacted upon different forms and levels of identity. Individual identity, when we define ourselves as unique persons of a certain kind, or different forms of social identity, such as ethnic, national, and others. And uh, the basic form of identity, which I talk about, which I'll talk about in a minute, when we recognize ourselves not just as Mr. So-and-so or as belonging to a particular group, but as human beings. And how does this consciousness of being human arise in history? And how, in the, under the impact of globalization, that consciousness of ourselves as human beings, and not simply individuals who are exhausted in particular roles, how does that consciousness arise and how it can be mobilized if we are going to cope with the problems of globalization. And that's basically what I'm trying to do in the book. Now, when we talk about identity, and as like any boring philosopher, I spent about 45 pages simply trying to explain what we mean by identity, whether it's a slogan, which became popular in the 60s, or whether it's a genuine concept. And if it is a genuine concept, what does it conceptualize? Now, the question of identity can arise in many different contexts. I might ask myself whether I'm the same person today as I was 50 years ago. Or I might ask myself, where, who am I in the midst of all the variety of roles that I play? Am I simply a sum of my roles? Or is there something that's me? Or I might ask myself if I'm simply a stream of consciousness, changing moods, emotions, and so on, and whether, any, whether there is any persistent sense which I can recognize in a human kind of way as me. But there is also another sense, far more important and common, uh, in, uh, in which we use the term identity, which is what defines me as this kind of person rather than some other. How do I define myself? And having defined myself in a certain way, how do I go about organizing my individual and social life? And that is the kind of question I'm asking that identity understood in the sense of self-definition of who I am, how do I understand myself, and uh, what, it is, what it is that makes me me rather than somebody else, and what, as a result, distinguishes me from others. That is the sense of identity in which, I, in which I'm interested, and that is the focus of the book. Now, the first point I uh, make in the uh, book, after having defined identity in this way at some length, is to say that identity is articulated at three levels. 
first of all, that an individual's identity as a unique person, as me rather than anybody else, what I call personal identity, where I define myself as a certain kind of person who has certain fundamental commitments, who has certain values, who has certain attitudes, a certain way of looking at the world, which defines me. There is also the second level, which I call social level, where I'm a father, a husband, a friend, a member of a particular ethnic community, belonging to a particular gender, or belonging to a particular national community. We call it social identity. And then there is what I call a human identity. Now, this is something which some people have disputed on the ground, that identities have to be specific, and therefore only social identity or personal identity counts as identity. Being human is simply a fact of life, a biological fact. I dispute that. And I argue that at one level uh, we are human beings, biologically, different from uh, non-human animals. But when we begin to define ourselves as human beings, the biological fact becomes morally significant. And you ask yourself, just as you might ask yourself, as a, as a person who is committed to certain values, what kind of life should I live? Likewise, it is possible for us to ask, as a human being, what is the kind of life I should be living? What is the minimum below which my conduct should not fall? What is the way in which I am related to other human beings whom I recognize as human beings? And I argue that this way of understanding oneself uh, arises only at a certain point in history and is becoming more and more relevant and needs to be activated in uh, our times. So that's the threefold distinction between individual, social, and human identity. I spent quite a bit of time on social identity because I think it is, uh, at one level, one of the most important. And here, it's quite common to argue that we have several social identities. The answer is, of course, we have several social identities. But are they all or can they all be equally important? Is it not the case that we need certain organizing principles in life and therefore, let's say, religious identity might become very important for people? Could it also not be the case that national identity tends to have a great importance in the lives of some people? So the point I make, and I uh, argue at some length, is to say that although we have multiple identities, we should not simply leave it at that, because these multiple identities need to be organized, structured, related, prioritized. Without that, life can't function. I'm a father, I'm a professor, but I also happen to be, let's say, Hindu or a Buddhist or a Christian or whatever. And if my religion happens to be the source of my ultimate commitments, then that is going to shape other identities. But that raises a very important question. If my religion is that important, or my country is that important, as in the case of nationalist way of thinking, can it be the case that that particular identity trumps or subsumes or overwhelms all others? For, and I have an example and which is drawn from real life. Imagine somebody who is a, a devout Christian a truly religious person who wants to organize his life along Christian principles. Now, it just so happens that he also has other interests, including being a cricketer. He can be a bird enthusiast, uh, Alfred Hitchcock fan, um, professor at the LSC, but he can also be lots of other things. Imagine him as a cricketer. <laughs> now, this man who's a devout Christian, he asks himself, what does it mean to be a good Christian cricketer? Because Christianity is his fundamental commitment. What does it mean to be a good father, good son, good professor, good defined in each case in Christian terms? Because that's the source of his ultimate commitment. 
And supposing this person therefore were to say, look, whenever I bat, I must make sure that I show the spirit of Christian caritas, love and charity, to the bowler. And if he finds that a bowler is about to, uh, he has taken two wickets already, this Christian batsman say, you know, I should surrender my wicket to this man so that he has a hat-trick. Or if the bowler has been performing badly and he is likely to lose his place in the team, he might say, as a good Christian, in a spirit of love, I should allow him to take my wicket so that he can retain his place. Would he be right? Would he be wrong? And if he's wrong, why is he wrong? Now, I spent some time explaining why this is wrong, and one of the reasons why he is wrong is not that he should not extend Christian principles to various activities of his life, including cricket. He might sign autographs for spectators, saying, as a Christian, I should set aside a few minutes because these young children have come and they want me to sign an autograph or a bat or a ball or whatever. But the point is, is he right to extend his Christian principles in the game of cricket in this way? And if not, why not? And my argument is that different identities at a certain point have their autonomy. And although they are subject at some level to the overarching principles of a man's fundamental commitment, these identities have their autonomy. And if their autonomy were to be denied, then not only you destroy that identity, the identity of a cricketer, because this man is just not playing, as we would say, this is just not cricket, if he threw away his wicket in this way. What do we mean by saying this is not cricket? Not in a metaphorical sense. What we are saying is that this game, if we are going to, if we are going to judge the results of the game, decide who has won and who has not won, who is a good batsman, who is a good bowler, if we are going to make these kinds of judgments which are internal to the game in question, then the game cannot be played in this Christian kind of way. It will destroy, it will undermine Christianity, but it will also undermine the game, the other identity. So in that sense, I think while not simply leaving it at that by saying, look, we have multiple identities, and like as if identities were a matter of, matter of credit card, you know, we can pull out one credit card and another, it's not like that. But at the same time, it is not the case that all identities are tightly structured in such a way that one trumps all others or overwhelms or organizes all others. So this is broadly my view. And the third point, and I should stop there, is uh, a more philosophical point where I draw upon Hegel uh, and to some extent Marx, but mainly Hegel, that we have multiple identities, but we also have individual identity, different kinds of social identities, and this human identity, the universal. And the question, therefore, is how is the particular related to the universal? And the general uh, guiding thread throughout the book is the Hegelian view that all particular identities are embedded in and structured by the universal identity. And conversely, the universal identity, the human identity, doesn't float in the air. It is mediated by and realized through our national and other identities. I apply this toward the end of the book to this larger question. If we see ourselves in this uh, uh, globalizing world as human beings and relate to each other in the spirit of human solidarity, what happens to our national identity? Does it mean that we are no longer, we are citizens of the world, in the, in the, uh, as Martha Nussbaum and uh, following Stoics has argued? Or is it simply that we are concerned with this particular community of which we are happen to be citizens? My philosophical understanding of identity rules out both extremes. We are not citizens of the world, full stop, nor are we citizens of this particular country, full stop. We are both. 
And the question, therefore, is how do we integrate them in such a way that our human solidarity is articulated through the medium of our national citizenship? And here I go on to talk about what would a globally oriented citizen, not a global citizen, that I reject, but what would a globally oriented citizen look like? How should he conduct himself? <clears throat> and in that context, I have a fairly detailed discussion of our obligations to other people uh, at the economic and other levels, and therefore involves a long discussion of global justice and where do we get the principles of global justice from, but also at the, uh, in terms of justice itself, do we have obligations not only to remove poverty in other parts of the world, but also to help them enjoy decent uh, political conditions of human life, to enabling them to create a political community where their own state might have failed or might be too weak to sustain a valuable form of life. So we need to think of obligations to other communities, not just in terms of sharing economic rewards, but also in terms of humanitarian intervention in certain cases and promotion of democracy. That raises some very large questions. Do we have an obligation to promote democracy? If we do, what do we mean by democracy in the first instance? Could it not take different forms? Could there not be Islamic democracy or Buddhist democracy? Is there only one form of it? If we are there agree that there is a certain way of defining democracy which is universally valid, do we have an obligation to promote it? And I argue that we do. But if we do have an obligation, do we also not have an obligation to promote the autonomy of other societies? What is the trade-off between these two goods? And I argue that there is a certain kind of trade-off which does not rule out the possibility of helping other societies establish uh, proper conditions of good life, in which case, how should we go about doing this? And here, in the light of Iraq and Afghanistan, I spent some time exploring what I think might be the most sensible way in which, in a spirit of human solidarity, not Western arrogance or patronizing attitude, in a spirit of human solidarity, those of us who come from the left might be able to argue that we do have certain obligations to people in other countries of a kind which involves helping them promote democracy and other conditions of good life. So I hope this gives you some idea of the journey which I take in this book. It uh, begins with an abstract discussion of the concept of identity and ends with rather normative, uh, practical recommendations as to how we might be able to institutionalize human solidarity. One of the ideas I fleetingly uh, mention but don't explore is some kind of a global welfare state. Just as we have a welfare state in our own societies, is it beyond our means or our imagination to think that we can create institutions, not just United Nations, but new institutions, World Bank, or different kinds, differently organized, where we can make sure that no one in any part of the world anywhere goes hungry or is left without shelter? How about not just some kind of global welfare state, but also ensuring that there are certain forms of basic human rights which are available to all. And how could this be done in an emancipatory way rather than in a hegemonic way, which seems to be the case currently? Thank you. Now turn to John Keane. John says he loves you really, but he's going to have a go at your book, so you better get your you better get your pen ready and your pad ready. Thanks for the bridge building, Tony. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I, uh, as far as I'm aware, it's not very often that my uh, good friend, colleague, and 
mentor for many years, Bhikkhu Parekh, is likened to the famous tree of his country of birth, a giant tree that's known in English as the Banyan tree. The reason might be thought obvious. Bhikkhu Parekh is, of course, of modest physique, whereas the Banyan tree is among the largest on earth. They're certainly larger than this room. They can reach more than 30 meters in height and 200 meters in diameter to cover an area of several hectares. But for me, the simile makes sense, uh, especially for those of us uh, who are familiar with uh, Bhikkhu Parekh's work, including, I think, this fabulous new book on which, despite many duties globally and in the Lords, he has worked, he tells me, for four hard years. It's a great book. Like the banyan tree, whose interlinked roots and branches and massive canopy often serves as a symbol of the unity that comes from diversity, uh, Bhikkhu Parekh's intellectual interests have always been broad-minded, wide, and deep, laced with the generosity of public spirit and a strongly communitarian political heart that reaches out to the world. This book is no exception. The Banyan uh, is, of course, a sacred tree. Its defacement or destruction is considered a sin, so that, for example, in ancient Hindu myth, uh, with which Bhikkhu Parekh became familiar in Gujarat as a young boy, it's known as the many-footed wish-fulfilling tree. Bhikkhu Parekh's book, uh, this work more generally, I think, and his work more generally, looks forward. It has a strong element of wishing and wish-fulfillment, and I say that in the most positive sense. And finally, the banyan tree, of course, is a politically useful tree. Uh, it is uh, uh, not merely a symbol of the Indian subcontinent and its remarkable achievements. In contemporary India, many communities, as you may know, have a banyan tree that provides shelter from the elements, a place to sleep and relax and chat, as well as a space where the community can meet to discuss and to decide important matters. All of these are themes in the work of and in this book in particular. And you may know that the banyan is a source of fruit, fig-like fruit for humans and animals, including monkeys in times of food shortage. So to speak of the banyan tree when coming to grips with this new book is not only to underline the path-breaking importance of an originally Indian scholar who continues to value his Indian roots. Like the banyan tree with its deep roots, many trunks and tall branches that stretch not only upwards but outwards as well, this book displays a wonderful depth and span, and it serves, I think, as a wonderful model for contemporary political thinking. It also provides, I think, much room for chattering monkeys like me to swing around, to sample its fruits, and yes, cause a spot of trouble, as Tony predicted, within its branches. Let me say something briefly about the book. Its principal thesis uh, is, like the Banyan, rather ambitious. It stretches the popular category of identity, the fact of being who or what a personal thing is to encompass the globe. Bhikkhu makes a bold move against the particularist bias, as he has just explained, in much contemporary discussion of identity based, say, on ethnicity or faith or gender or nationality. Under the influence of Oakshot, he builds on the modern philosophical fascination with communities that can protect and nurture people. I think uh, one of the things that could be said in more detail about the book is the way in which in a post-Christian world, in this patch of the earth, there has been now um, a several centuries sustained reflection on the problem of how to reintegrate broken uh, communities. Uh, think of uh, Fichte and Hegel on the state, think of Marx and Lukács on class consciousness, think of Tocqueville on civil society, 
think of John Stuart Mill and the dependence of his whole political thinking and theory of individual freedom on representative government. Think of Husserl's theory of intersubjectivity. Or think of Martin Buber, uh, rather close, I think, to Bikou's uh, book on the primordial importance of the opening towards each other, which occurs between I and thou. A special interest in this book is the political category of the citizen, an equal of others bound to them by common involvement in a polity under laws of their own common making. Bikou Parek wants to say that the well-established category of citizen of a state contains within it a strong implication. This is an unusual argument, I think, uh, because uh, citizenship is so often bound up with the particularist identity of a territorial state. And it has, until I think the advent of the concept of European citizenship, been wholly dominant. He wants to say against this dominance that the duty of citizens uh, uh, of a state uh, is to take an interest in the wider world, to feel a, a duty of care to others whom they will never meet in their lives but whose lives mesh with their own by way, for example, of the kaleidoscope of push-pull, butterfly, boomerang effects that operate across vast planetary distances with, uh, and within limited and long-term time frames. This leads him to be sceptical of those, Enoch Powell, Margaret Thatcher in this book, who dogmatize particular identities. They are uh, uh, pushing a type of mistaken identity, one could say mistaken, because they fail to see within the identity of the citizen, the outlines of a global ethics. Three principles in particular are central to this book. Human beings are equally valued. Led, uh, they lead free and fulfilling lives, and they deal with their common problems and nurture their shared world in the spirit of human solidarity, and they cherish and profit from their individual and collective differences. There are many points of agreement that I have with this book, it's a great book to repeat, and I urge you all to read it. I warmly welcome his brave efforts to walk in the footsteps of very few thinkers uh, before him. Very few thinkers have actually tried to craft um, a philosophical ethics that can address uh, the whole uh, experience of globalization. Hans Jonas is one of the few. So is Hans Kung, uh, who is mentioned in this book. Uh, thinkers who have tried to defend at the same time a species of pluralism against monistic worldviews. There have been actually very few uh, worldviews in the technical sense of the term. Christianity aspired to be one, Islam before it also. British civilization, a hodgepodge of views about civility and Christianity and empire. Socialism tried to do that in the early 20th century and perhaps some fascists tried to do, do it. All of them have failed. And there's not much left, and this book should be seen, I think, as an attempt to try to uh, fashion, uh, uh, philosophically speaking, uh, with a political uh, nose, some uh, uh, new set of ethics for living in a world increasingly troubled and interdependent. I think all that's terrific. I think Bikou Parekh is also right to observe that our actions affect distant others, that we face common problems, that in this great growth spurt of globalization, which is going on under our noses, uh, there are growing numbers of groups who compare themselves and their fates to one another. And that on balance, I agree with him, that wars in this whole process make things much worse. I think he is right to query liberal individualism and particularly those species of liberal individualism that have no truck with intermediary bodies uh, in the formation of our identities. 
I think the politics of recognition, uh, as he puts it, uh, has a strong affinity with the politics of redistribution. Who one is very much depends on one's power in the world to act within and on that world. I agree with him also that globalization does not lead to homogenization or straightforward Americanization. You may know um, the, the witty saying of Marshall Salins um, about this uh, rather widespread view that globalization equals Americanization equals homogenization. Uh, he once remarked when pressed on this, uh, and Bhikkhu Parekh I think is very much in, in, in this vein, to say that it's a bit like saying that the arrival of invention and spread of chop suey in America uh, represents the Chinese takeover of the United States in the same way that the arrival of French fries, he's being uh, witty, um, uh, is, it, it has nothing to do with the Americanization of China. And I agree with uh, Bhikkhu Parekh that the British debate on national identity, about which I suspect David uh, Goodhart will have something, remains rather disappointing. I would say caught up, especially in England, in some kind of post-imperial depression. There are a lot of points uh, that I would like to add, and, but I'm going to skip over, and I warned you that monkeys like to climb on bunyan trees, uh, sometimes to feed off their fig-like fruits and to chatter and to cause some trouble. So here I go with three points, and then I'll, I'll end. The first point um, I want to uh, uh, refer to and uh, to ask uh, Bhikkhu to comment on uh, what could be called a political anthropology. He declares at the outset of the book that he's not interested in examining the causes, the agents, and the future forms of globalization. And I wonder why he made that choice. Uh, because it seems to me that that's a mistake. Not only because it appears to contradict his long-standing commitment to a view of political thinking as needing to be close to things as they are, as he puts it in this book, that the vita contemplativa should be close to the vita activa. I agree with that. And it's therefore odd that in this book uh, there is very little discussion except by way of random uh, comments about the institutional trajectories, the dynamics, the dilemmas, the wicked problems, as public policy people call them, that are now operating globally. And the consequence is, I think, uh, a strange and unintended consequence in the empirical dimensions of the, of the book, which is that um, I think there is a strange unintended bias towards the territorial state, a certain bipolarity that runs through the book. You will find there are passages where he refers to the state, the territorial state, and humanity, as if there's nothing in between. Um, and there is also, I think, a bipolarity, a certain bipolarity in normative terms, so that when he's speaking about norms, he refers to uh, the norms of citizenship within and uh, around and affixed to territorial states, and then the norms of a wider uh, global uh, humanity. And that seems to me to miss um, many of the interesting and important and complicating trends, I think, that would need to be dealt with if we're going to speak about a uh, humanist ethics that has uh, some political purchase. So, for example, what I think uh, is, uh, is missing from this book is um, what I once tried to call cosmocracy. I mean, the whole ensemble of very messy, uh, currently thickening legal governmental institutions that uh, straddle and bind states across territorial boundaries into regions and even operating at the global level. Missing, too, is a global civil society. It's deeply implied in this book 
But I think uh, it would help as a category to make sense of, of what uh, Bhikkhu Parekh is up to. And I think the emergence of global publics um, and whole areas of life as well, uncivil war zones, where nothing like humanity exists in any straightforward sense. Well, these are themes, I think, that are rather uh, underdeveloped. And I would say that it would be good uh, for Bhikkhu to say something briefly tonight about some of these institutions. For example, the invention since 1945 of a whole new cluster of power monitoring institutions that operate across borders and that help his case. Summits, truth and reconciliation tribunals, criminal courts, peer review panels, open methods of coordination, the first signs of regional parliaments. I mean, these are all assisting, so to say, Bhikkhu's uh, uh, view. You draw to a close. I'm going to try to, yes. Um, second point, and I'm going to do a big, very large monkey jump uh, across my banyan tree, and I'd like to say something uh, briefly about uh, humanity. At the risk of sounding a misanthrope, I would say that talk of the human race as a whole and our shared humanity is probably premature. I agree that talk of the human is spreading, and one of the curious developments of our time, I think, is that political commitment to human rights grows as philosophical commitment to those rights wanes. It's a very odd development. There seems to be a lack of philosophical confidence in the category, and yet politically it gains uh, ground. I would say that there is a temptation in this book to lapse into ontology. Human beings are the bedrock, the supporting layer of particular more local identities. But Bhikkhu Parekh in this book sometimes moves away from that ontological view, rightly in my view, in the face of obvious violations of, and, and violators of human identity. Think of Daniel Plainview and Daniel Day-Lewis's In There Will Be Blood. What kind of human being is that character who loves oil and power and is a rotten uh, scoundrel. Uh, this leads Bhikkhu to rest upon the argument that actually human identity is created, fashioned politically. And yet one would want, I think, uh, those uh, first, that political anthropology, to help to explain uh, this. And then there is a time, uh, there are times in the book, it seems to me, where there is something of a Gnosticism at work, the presumption that particular solidarities, local solidarities, mesh uh, unproblematically with a global identity. I think I would like to hear why that's the case and uh, uh, whether, in fact, that's what Bhikkhu uh, uh, is thinking. Last comment, if I may. I want to say something about anthropocentrism. It's pretty obvious, I think striking, uh, by its absence from this book, is the neglect of the biosphere. I say that um, uh, uh, strongly because in the book there are references to uh, green politics. But it does seem to me that one of the things that needs to be said is that there is, uh, I think, in uh, all defenses of human identity, the great danger of what David Ehrenfeld said, called some 25 years ago, the arrogance of humanism. A human chauvinism, the presumption that humans are the crown of creation, the culmination of evolution, and the only morally considerable beings entitled to a permanent place under the sun. Uh, to raise the question of anthropocentrism, I'm curious to hear what Bhikkhu Parekh has to say about this. What is the place of uh, those species, those dynamics that are obviously not human, but of which we are part and which we are finding out are increasingly co-determinant of our fates? It's not fair to say that to raise... 
the question of anthropocentrism is to lapse into some kind of um, some kind of misanthropy of the kind that, for example, John Gray, it seems to me, has done. And you don't have to buy uh, Peter Singer's view that the shrimp um, is a sentient being and the oyster is not. Um, but it does seem to me that the whole politics of advocating uh, the interests, the concerns, the dynamics of the biosphere is obviously very important to build in to this uh, theory of global ethics. And I, it seems to me that it is uh, mainly absent uh, from this book. One could put it like this as a final remark. I think going on under our noses is a very long and great transformation. It never uh, happened before in the history of democracy, which is the extension, metaphorically speaking, of the vote to nature. Um, Bhikkhu, uh, in the final pages of the book, discusses democracy promotion. It seems to me this is one of the very fundamental um, and really, as Hegel would say, well, historical uh, trends of our time. Whether the question is whether there can be something like an enfranchisement by proxy of a new constituency, the biosphere itself. Well, great books like Big Bunyan Trees attract little creatures that sometimes overstay their welcome, so I'd better get off this podium before uh, I'm thrown out. Thank you very much. Well, now we turn to David Goodhart, who a few years ago tried to get us to face up to an inconvenient truth that the welfare system, as we know it in Western countries, could find it difficult to cope with migration. Unfortunately, he didn't call it an inconvenient truth because otherwise he could have made a film and made a lot of money <laughs> out of it. Um, well, thank you very much. As an expression of um, human solidarity with, uh, with all of you here um, and, with, and with John Keane, I'm uh, going to sacrifice five minutes of my time um, so that you all... Um, you all have more time to ask questions. I'm not actually going to um, touch on the solidarity versus diversity thesis directly, although perhaps we could uh, come back to that. Um, Biku does uh, touch on it in the book, um, which I greatly enjoyed um, and learned a lot from. Biku um, is someone who uh, I've found um, very tolerant uh, uh, of my... Uh, I think he privately believes slightly eccentric views. Um, but um, over the last three or four years, um, um, he, has, um, he and I have, have kept up a, a, um, a regular dialogue. Um, and um, that I, I, I thank you very much for. Um, Biku is a great diplomat. And I think if, if the book has a fault, it is perhaps that it is a bit on the one hand, on the other hand, um, everything is rather balanced out and every point gets a look in. Um, having said that, it pretty firmly between the lines um, to the extent that, that it's a political book, and it is a very political book, um, it is between the lines a, a very strong defense of uh, a liberal British multiculturalism, I would say, um, and Biku argues that, it's, that it works. It's working pretty well. Um, I, would, um, I would take issue with that. I think there are a lot of problems, both in practice and in theory, 
with the way that uh, British multiculturalism is, uh, is unfolding. Um, and I think there is pretty generally acknowledged there is a great deal more confusion these days about, uh, about multiculturalism, about mass immigration, uh, than there would have been 15 or 20 years ago. And some of those confusions one can see in the responses of the Labour government, indeed of all, of all politicians, of all main parties. Um, I think there is justifiable anxiety um, about, about separation, about the erosion of common culture. Um, and I do think that some of the main um, standard sort of critiques of multiculturalism remain, uh, remain often unanswered. I mean, the, the two most obvious ones being the conflict between liberalism and group rights. Um, this, is, this is often dismissed as, um, as just a matter of theory and that obviously uh, liberalism, whether it's to do with freedom of speech or women's rights, um, must in a country like Britain take preference. But that isn't always the view of, um, of some people in this country. Um, I think the other um, and, and perhaps more uh, less straightforward critique of multiculturalism um, is the one that has been uh, argued by Eric Kaufman, amongst others, is that in practice, multiculturalism, meaning the... Uh, the positive expression of ethnic identities, um, the, the encouragement indeed in, in the expression of ethnic identities, the importance of ethnic identities to individual identities, um, that that belief has been applied very asymmetrically. But where are the majorities in this story? Um, you know, there is, I think, a, a problem here. Um, the um, you know how, how minority identities and majority identities rub up against each other is, is something that there aren't self-evident um, answers to when they conflict. Um, and um, I think generally speaking, the, um, the approach that's been taken by liberal politics has been to say that you know, majorities sort of by definition don't really need ethnic identities or their ethnic identities are already happily satisfied by existing political arrangements. Um, well, I'm not sure that that is true any longer. Um, the, it seems to me that we've, um, we never really had a sort of um, a theory of multiculturalism in the way that the, the French or the, or the Canadians um, had. We um, we had a kind of laissez-faire multiculturalism. Um, after all, when, um, when multiculturalism was emerging as a, as, a, as a current in British life and thought, um, it was the Conservatives that were in power for much of the time. Um, and the, um, I think the, the, the belief was that um, we would everybody would just sort of happily rub along. We didn't have to spell things out. We didn't have to have a clear, modernized sense of what British national citizenship was. We certainly didn't have a clear, modernized idea of what British national citizenship was. Um, we went, I think, from a kind of imperial idea, uh, the rem remnants of which we still live with, the fact that Irish citizens can vote in British elections and so on and so forth. Uh, these are all 
imperial residues, um, we went from an imperial to a kind of post-national um, idea of the nation-state. Um, and I think that um, we've now, as it were, recognized the limits of that. And um, we need to, um, as it were, sort of go back a couple of steps and establish what lots of other more modern states um, established um, many decades ago. Um, I mean, for, for that reason, as you can guess, I have some sympathy for uh, some of the things that the, the Labour government are trying to do uh, in, this, in this area. Um, um, I mean, it's often very clunking and old-fashioned and sounds rather sort of 1950s-ish. Um, um, but I think you know, the attempt to more clearly spell out the rights and responsibilities of citizens, um, the attempt to clarify the dividing line between citizens and non-citizens more clearly, uh, and indeed make a clearer offer to new citizens um, with um, citizenship ceremonies and so on and so forth. Um, all of those things seem to me to be uh, overdue um, and may be a kind of you know, helping to create a kind of roof under which um, you know, a, a post-ethnic ethos of national citizenship underneath which um, we, can, we, can, we can resolve the, uh, the, the problem of asymmetrical multiculturalism that I uh, mentioned earlier. Um, the, um, because it seems to me that the, the real crunch in this argument uh, uh, is about citizenship interests. You know, I mean, who, you know, whose interests is the nation state serving if not all British citizens? I mean, that, that, is, that is the point of the nation state. Um, and if the interests of British citizens of all colours and creeds are not put before the interests of, of others, um, then, then, as I say, it, sort of, it, it undermines the point of the, of the nation state. Uh, I mean, sort of citizenship um, preference is, is, is at its heart. Now, it's true that that sounds as if it conflicts with the idea of liberal universalism the idea of the moral equality of all human beings, uh, an idea which is extraordinarily recent, uh, is worth just reminding ourselves, I think, in, in modern political history. I mean, it's been a, obviously it's been a utopian idea, a religious idea for, for tens of thousands of years, but um, as um, I discovered reading a book by Will Kimlicker the other day, um, just to show I do read serious multiculturalist authors, um, I was astonished to discover that as recently as 1919, uh, the Japanese had proposed as part of the League of Nations a straightforward statement um, about the racial equality of all humans, and it had been rejected by all the main Western powers, including the United States and Canada. Um, and then, what, you know, only 30 years later, we had, um, 1948, we had the United Nations... Um, declaration of human rights and very soon after that the idea of moral the moral equality of all citizens both, both within states and between them became uh, established at least as, as an ideal of, of, 
both national and international politics. Um, so as I say, I think it's worth remembering how recent that is. Um, now, of course, perhaps particularly to people on the left, the idea of the moral equality of all humans seemed to under undermine the case for preferring your own citizens. Um, and it seems to me this is, this is sort of the heart of the matter. This, is, this was the great fallacy of the left, in a way. Um, and it led to, encouraged a kind of uh, post-nationalism in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, which, which fed into um, a, a liberal multiculturalist discourse. Um, and although one can understand the roots of it, I think it was a, a serious sort of category error. Um, of course, it's possible to, indeed, uh, in, indeed necessary to regard all humans as morally equal and objects of our sympathy or our interests, but at the same time acknowledge that you can have, indeed ought to have, special commitment, special obligations to your fellow national citizens. Um, I mean, that's, that is, of course, what sort of, what sort of happened in practice, but um, the, the, the ethos, the post-national liberal multiculturalist ethos has, has always felt rather queasy about it. I mean, the fact, for example, that we spend um, whatever it is, 25 times more on the NHS every year than we do on development aid um, is a, um, you know, suggests that in, in practice, of course, we do prefer our, our own fellow nationals. Um, but um, anyway, the point is that moral equality is compatible with special commitments. Um, and um, of course, the, the, the nature, you then move on to, you know, well, what, what, are, what are the nature of those commitments um, or, you know, what's the, what's the specialness based on? Um, I mean, it, until quite recently, it would have been based on ideas of race or ethnicity, but certainly since the, since the mid-century, um, it has been based on the idea of citizenship itself, um, the rather sort of thinner attachments of citizenship um, is, what, um, it what, is what gives us special claims on each other. Um, but what... But, but what oh, I've, I've arrived my ten. Oh dear, sorry. Um, well just, uh, let, let me wind up. I mean, it, it seems to me that um, there is no grand... Um, there is no grand philosophical justification necessary for this preference for one's own fellow citizens. It is simply a pragmatic evaluation of what works best in the world. It seems to me absolutely clear that you know, well-functioning nation states are the places where most of the things that liberals or social democrats or socialists want work best, whether it's democratic accountability, redistribution of wealth, welfare states, shared languages and norms, feelings of of belonging and so on require, require borders of all kinds, borders and boundaries of all kinds. Um, uh, I was going to go on to contest the idea that one, commonly, one of the common criticisms of this view is that uh, surely we just need human rights. Human rights as a basis for citizenship is sufficient. I mean, I don't, I mean, I won't go into this, but I think that human rights presupposes the kind of solidarity and the kind of political community um, that it claims to create. Um, anyway, I mean, my final thought is that we need, and I think um, 
Biku some of the time seems to su suggest he would go along with this idea and some of the time doesn't. But I think you know, we need, particularly people on the left, need to come to the aid of the nation state now. Uh, we need to rethink, as Labour is doing in a slightly clumsy way, what a, a post-ethnic national citizenship looks like. Because we are the people. People on the left are the people that are that are making demands of the state. You know, we want people to pay, or we want the state to make demands of citizens. We want, we want people to pay more tax. We want people to be active citizens. Um, so I think we need a, an overarching idea of, of what we're on about. Thanks very much. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, since time is getting on, I'm going to turn directly to the audience and then maybe get Biko to respond um, at the very end because time is running out a bit. We've got a certain amount of time for questions. I thought I'd read. I've never chaired a lecture at the LSE before, and so they gave me these instructions. And I thought I'd read this out. It's quite funny. At the start of a Q&A session, it is recommended that the chair reminds those wishing to ask a question, and then it's got it in bold letters, to ask a question rather than deliver their own lecture. <laughs> and it is not uncommon for questioners to ramble on. So with that reminder, I invite um, comments and questions. Um, I think there should be roving mic, presumably downstairs and upstairs. There's one here. Who would like to begin? A couple of people at the top there. Could you wait for a mic to come across to you? You're holding a piece of paper. It says questioners are asked not to give their own lecture. <laughs> right. I, I discarded. Um, well, yes, a, a wonderful presentation, no doubt. But the idea of autonomy of identity, I mean, yes, it does solve certain problems. It gives basis for multiculturalism. And it, it, what you call, gets over some of the, uh, some of the uh, serious problems that may, uh, that may what you call, uh, uh, work against the, the unity of, uh, uh, of communities. But how do you reconcile this idea with your other project, other dear project of the, the universal human rights, the, uh, the universal, universality of man, the human identity? So do you see any, any, any contradiction? Uh, between the idea of the autonomy of identity and the universality of, uh, of humanity. Thank you. Thank you. Could we have the other person just near you, please? Hi. Um, I was just wondering what you think the role of identity is in attitudes towards foreign aid from a cross-national sort of perspective, and also if you think that um, what you think about um, the notion that identity is a top-down, comes from the state, essentially, that the, the state's role determines people's identity as global citizens. Thank you. Could we just take one more, maybe from down here, and then I'll ask Biku to respond. Please, you, sir, in the middle there. Just in the middle there. Can I ask you to hold the mic sort of fairly close to your... Thank you. Uh, could I ask David, I was say uh, David Goodhart in particular, but Everybody, um, if, uh, if they wish to comment, what should be the criteria of inclusion in that uh, post-ethnic na national citizenship? Uh, who should be allowed in? Um, and that might involve uh, policies of migration as well. Thanks. Uh, 
Thank you. Biku, would you like to respond to those three questions? Does your uh, instruction sheet have anything to say about how the speaker should answer the questions? <laughs> My instruction I, says, I can reveal a secret to you. It says These if the speaker cannot respond, turn to one of the respondents <laughs> to say something. And I can uh, match it with another. These instructions were written when uh, Lord Giddens was the director of the London School of Economics. <laughs> no, they bloody well weren't. We didn't. <laughs> it wasn't so bureaucratic in my day. <laughs> Uh, look, I think the uh, uh, first question uh, relates largely to what uh, David Goodhart was saying, and that is the possible conflict between universe, universalism and particularism. The kind of commitment one has to human beings everywhere, what I derive from the principle of equal human worth, and what I call the ethics of human solidarity, and at the same time, you, are, you belong to a particular community, a national community, and therefore you have certain obligations to it, which take precedence over your obligations to human beings everywhere. And the question in moral life always is, how do you reconcile these two? You can't simply dismiss one out of existence. And I have a chapter which gives me a lot of trouble, but I, I'm reasonably satisfied as I read it chapter called Tension Between Impartiality and Partiality. As a father, I'm naturally committed to my children, and I want to give them the best start in life. At the same time, as a moral being, I have certain commitments to others, and therefore may not squander all my wealth or give all my time to my children. How does one combine the two? And I have a long discussion of this. There are four or five different ways in which these two have been attempted to be reconciled in the history of philosophy. I criticize them and come out and offer an alternative way of looking at it. So rather than repeat it here, which will take me about four to five minutes, I would simply say that morality necessarily requires you to find ways of reconciling your particular obligations with universal obligations. You can't take shelter behind saying, look, I only have obligations to my own fellow citizens and I have no obligations to outsiders, that's a cop-out, it wouldn't work, because you, you create incoherence at a deeper level. Nor would it do to say, look, I have obligations to all humankind equally and have no particular obligations to my wife, to my children, to my fellow nationals, to my close friends. That is my brief response to the first question. And on the, the second question, identity, is, uh, it's a very complex question, which I tried to... Uh, summarize all too quickly uh, in my opening remarks. You see, no identity can be defined uh, in isolation. When I define myself as a certain kind of human being, I always do that, A, in the light of the uh, range of choices available to me in my society. For example, that is the institution of marriage. Therefore, it's possible for me to choose the identity of a husband or a wife or a whatever. If there was no institution of marriage, that identity simply would not be open to me. So the first point is identity is always uh, uh, structured by the range of choices available to you in your society and the way in which these choices are defined and given different degrees of significance. 
Second point I make in the book, and which I think relates to the question you're asking, no identity can be uh, articulated in a political vacuum. If the rest of society defines me in no other way than as a Jew or as an Indian or a Hindu or as a black man, I simply have no choice. Although it's open to me to say, look, this identity of being an Indian or a Hindu or whatever doesn't mean anything to me. I define myself as a professor or as a human being or whatever. That is just not open to me because that kind of definition has no, has no space in the way in which the society is structured. In South Africa, for example, where racism was everywhere and wherever you went you were defined in terms of your race, that was the only identity that was available to you. In principle, other identities were available to you, but in practice they meant nothing. In Nazi Germany, the point that Hannah Arendt makes, if you are defined as a Jew, you stand up as a Jew. So it's not a question of top-down. I mean, identity is always is a dialectical construct articulated in the course of the way you define yourself in the context of <coughs> the politics and cultural practices of your society. And on the third question, I would leave it to David. Citizenship. Uh, um, about uh, what, what the implications of that for immigration politics are. Is that right? Um, well, I mean, I think it would be um, a sort of Canadian model. You, um, you judge your um, immigration policy on the basis of the extent that you can calculate it, the interests of your existing citizens. You know, so that would tend to bias towards higher skilled people who are easier to integrate, um, which, which is what the Canadians have done. Um, <coughs> obviously, that, you, one would leave the door open to you know, legitimate refugee claims and so on and so forth, but um, I, mean, I think you know, we, we had a very laissez-faire policy. It was to, to do with empire and commonwealth and so on. It was not, it was not based on any sort of rational calculation of, of the best interests of existing citizens and still isn't, in, as far as I can see. Well, do you think that people should be allowed to become citizens early on, or should they be made to wait, because there's quite a lot of difference in different practice between different yeah. countries on that issue? I think, I think people should more or less have to become citizens. Um, I mean, at the moment, we've, uh, we're in the funny position where the thing that people really want is the permanent right of residence, which is, which is not citizenship. And because we're actually raising the hurdle slightly, you know, we're making it slightly harder for people. You know, you've got to do language tests and citizenship tests and so on. Well, uh, not if you're rich. Uh, <laughs> I, I think you still surely you have to still do the language tests. And so I mean, you can come and live here as a non-dom, but, uh, but as a, to, to, to become a citizen. Tax. Oh, God, he's becoming all lefty now, isn't he? Uh, um, but um, no, I mean, I think you know, we, we've, uh, we need more incentives for people to become citizens. I mean, we're, we're actually making it harder, not easier. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, I think language tests and so citizenship tests are, 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 are a good idea. I'm not saying we should scrap those, but I think it should be harder to be a denizen, you know, the technical term for someone who, who lives permanently in a country um, but isn't a citizen. We're going we're gonna to have more and more denizens in this country, which is, uh, I think, not a healthy thing. We'll take some more questions at this point. Um, anybody else? Well, everyone seems to be up at the top there wants to ask questions. Please go ahead, the two of people up there. Can I ask you to speak properly in the microphone, otherwise it's not so easy to hear down here. Failed test. <laughs> 
Well, you could try shouting at the microphone's back time. Elvis has left the building. Thanks. That's good. Um, my question is about the uh, ethical status of identity as it plays a role in the argument, the conclusion of which is global redistribution to feed the hungry, as he suggested. Um, is the value of identity something of intrinsic value? So the purpose of this global redistribution is to save, protect, further intrinsic intrinsically valuable identities, be they personal, social, or human? Or is identity uh, merely instrumental, instrumentally important in a kind of Kimlicka kind of sense that we need a smorgasbord of identities to choose from because what's really important is the choosing? Yeah, good. Someone right in front of you there, if you could. Hi, um, Alexander Tatenta, University of Glasgow. Um, the question goes uh, to find out what you think about the idea that um, identity could have a historical context and um, that plays perhaps on the peculiarity of any given society. For example, if you look at um, South Africa, where the um, Caucasian or white settlers there, or white uh, minority there, are considered to be settlers, whereas every other person in, um, say, Western society or UK is considered minority. And in looking at that also, uh, I think I also want us to explore the idea, I think one of which was raised by Costas Dozenas, in which he says that uh, whereas um, human rights supposedly belongs to all humans by virtue of a common humanity, that is a citizenship that transforms these external and inalienable rights into, um, into um, actually rights that can be protected um, by virtue of the state being in charge of its citizens and um, its territory. And finally, would it be right to say something which also Costas Dozenas and Fitzpatrick's um, kind of um, echo, which is that um, universalism has, uh, has, uh, uh, has become an aggressive, aggressive essentialism, which has globalized the uh, nationalism um, and, and transformed the humankind's prospects for realization of human rights. Thank you. Thank you. Was there someone over here who wanted to? And then someone at the back would take these four questions. Hi, Malcolm Kamerant. Um, if, as I believe, um, belonging is the highest stage of identity, why does belonging need borders, as Dr. Goodhart said? Sorry, I didn't why get the last bit. Why does belonging need borders? Why does belonging need any borders, borders yeah, if it's the highest stage of identity? I'll take um, to keep people the person over here and then... Um, I wanted to ask the name Marx was mentioned a couple of times, and according to him, if I remember correctly, um, conscience and morals as being a form of conscience is secondary to economic conditions. So um, can globalization create wealth for everyone, and will humanity, global humanity, follow suit? Thank you. It was a little question to finish with. Um, Finish you've got, you, well, to finish this little batch anyway. Yeah. But we, we, I think we probably have to finish in about um, 10 minutes, quarter of an hour time. Yeah. Well, so look. could you respond fairly sort of um, concisely? Right. In which case, I'll say I agree with questions one and two, but not entirely with questions three and four. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I fell into that trap, didn't I? Maybe you'd better, maybe you'd better elaborate no, I, no, no, a bit. I, I think to be absolutely fair, you have been very kind. It goes to show how close we all, we are, the four of us here are, and therefore I think my uh, colleagues here in criticizing the book were very generous. I think if we were not friends, 
in a way that we have been. Perhaps they might have been much more critical of the book and wouldn't have advised you to buy it. Uh, on this question, I'll, I just want to concentrate on one or two questions, which I think is very important. Is universalism necessarily aggressive? Now, that's a feeling that's very widely shared, that the moment you talk in terms of something being a universal good, the implication seems to be, therefore, you have a duty to promote it, and therefore, if it can't be done with the uh, willing consent of others, you can foist it upon them. So universalism can easily have, and historically it had, I mean, I have written about it, why liberalism from, from uh, Locke, John Stuart Mill, Kant, in some forms, Heider, went on to justify colonialism in one way or another. Why it grows out of Christian evangelicalism, the good news, that truth has been revealed to us and therefore we have a duty not only to propagate but also to promote it. And if the blighted wouldn't listen to us, we'll break open their borders and make sure that they do. So universalism can have that kind of aggressive thrust. And it is precisely because of this that I was trying to build into universalism an inherent inbuilt structural limit, which is to say that universalism by itself is too abstract and must be mediated by particular identities. I have argued this at great length in my earlier book called Rethinking Multiculturalism. I do it here uh, in the last chapter on democracy. And I think on this other question of why do we need borders, I mean here I might um, slightly, very slightly disagree with what uh, David was saying. In terms of immigration, I have, if my view of human solidarity were to be followed through, I would see immigration as a more complex process. David is absolutely right. Uh, there is a particular political community. We have certain obligations to it. And its identity up to a point and its coherence must be sustained. And that means outsiders can't simply come in and, and, and make a mess of that way of life. I mean, that much I recognize. So you can't have completely open borders. But at the same time, given the principle of human solidarity, is it the case that just because we are rich and others want to come, we should plunder their brains and we should open our doors and take only the most talented? What about the poor? What about the talented people who are bound? I mean, they want to get out of the country because the country is in a mess. And I can say this even uh, in the context of India. And things have changed now. Nobody wants, not many people want to come anyway, but nevertheless, highly skinned manpower. I mean, lots of Indians came here with the result that uh, there are areas where India is short of skilled manpower. I mean, there are countries like Brazil, or, uh, some African countries, there are more trained doctors outside the country than within it. And I think if you are concerned with human solidarity, you have got to ask a question. Are we simply going to plunder other countries' talents? Or do we have some obligations to them? And I think, uh, I can't simply say close the door, don't let them come. I mean, that would be absurd. A, because many of them want to come and you'll be depriving them of the opportunity. And B, we do need them. And therefore, I suggest one or two ideas, which is, I mean, if you are going to uh, attract highly talented uh, software engineers or doctors, you should do two things. A, you must make sure that those countries are suitably rewarded. By, not by giving them money, because that will go into the pockets of the uh, corrupt politicians, but by setting up appropriate educational institutions in those countries. 
And secondly, making sure that in your own universities you are able to afford scholarship, offer scholarships and other things for students coming in from those countries. What we are now doing is we not only charge them more than we used to, but we also take away all the talented people. So I would want, therefore, uh, to find some way of balancing our own requirements with our obligations to the rest of mankind. And that's broadly my answer. Well, I, um, I have a lot of things to say, but I, I overstayed my welcome first time round, so I'd better not do it again. I, I, I think two things. Um, first of all, uh, we're living through times that uh, have some resemblances, I would say, to the last great growth spurt of globalization, which roughly happened between 1875 and 1930. And one of, one of the parallels... Uh, never mind anarchy of markets, um, never mind um, rearmament, but one of the parallels that I see is the fascination with uh, and, and attempts to restore uh, nation-state integrity. Um, white Australia policy and so on were phenomena of the 1890s, and I think that uh, I can detect in this country with the talk of Britishness, I mean, some revival, attempted revival of that. And it's in that context that does seem to me that one of the really important things about this book, probably it doesn't push it far enough, but that's what every great book does, is to raise the question, why is it that um, belonging needs borders? That is, what can be said positively about diversities of identities that actually straddle borders? Now, choice is the most common answer. Um, it's a good thing to have choice because actually... Um, I don't see identity in a, uh, an easy triangle as you do. I wish it were so simple. Dialectics, trialectics, if only life were like that. Multilectics, perhaps. I mean, we're all pretty richly conflicted, and a good life actually is richly conflicted. But it seems to me there are other reasons. Transfers of knowledge, universities is a good thing, cross borders. It does seem to me that um, multiplication of identities that straddle borders is a barrier against bossing, against unaccountable power, and there are many institutions that are una unaccountable, and this is the best way to check and monitor them. There are political economy reasons. I think these are all suggestions about what needs to be said in defense, I think, of, of your uh, thesis about the dovetailing, the meshing between citizenship and, and uh, global uh, identities. Political economy reasons, biomonitoring, and uh, one could go on. That's one comment. The other is that to David, uh, it does seem to me that it's worth pointing out, out that constitutionally speaking, we are now a part of the European Union and have been for a long time. And uh, quite recently, our Prime Minister sculpted off, I think that's the right word, and signed in camera the Treaty of Lisbon, which, as you may know, uh, consolidates uh, a now 35-year trend towards the definition in practice of European citizenship. I'm a European citizen. I think we all are European citizens on, on this podium, and probably many of you are. And it does seem to me that um, the book doesn't really um, develop this, but it does seem to me whatever you think about Europe and whether it's a new empire and blah, 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 it does seem to me something new happened here in the last generation, which is the construction of a new understanding of citizenship that does several things for the first time. It uh, guarantees the right of national identity, but breaks national identity from citizenship. Um, you know that European citizenship is derivative. You have to have 
a British passport, you have to be a British citizen in order to be a European citizen. But, but the sum total of, of this is to actually rupture, I would say for the first time ever, uh, national identity in principle and a plurality of national identities with citizenship. It's unusual because um, no welfare state uh, came along with the concept of the ideal and the institutionalization of a European citizen driven by the European Court of Justice, and that's one of the lingering problems. I mean, how shall there be a cultivation of solidarities, greater equality within uh, Europe? Um, it's interesting as well as a concept because it breaks the link historically between men on horseback and citizenship. Citizenship is a foul concept seen in terms of arms and masculinity. That has to be said. You don't say much about it in this book. The, the, the ideal, uh, the constitutional ideal of a European citizen actually breaks both of those. It's, uh, one is entitled now to have citizenship without having to serve military service, and that has enabled women as of right to have their citizenship. It does seem to me that uh, this trend, which is half a generation old, is pretty important. And I think any discussion of citizenship needs to, to incorporate it because it ought to change uh, the way we think about citizenship. I do not think it's just simply a question of repeating uh, the point without any philosophical justi justification that you know, national territorial state citizenship is the uh, anchor of our identity. I think that's simply empirically not so. And if I'm right, um, it might help Bikou Parekh's argument because it suggests that actually one of the longer-term knock-on effects of the, the, the construction of European citizenship is that it does make us think about our obligations in the world. And it is an unusual project because unlike the Americans, last sentence, uh, who had their 1776, a great moment of triumph where citizenship is born and modernity is theirs, uh, our citizenship uh, that has been defined in terms of European citizenship is based on tragedy, on disaster, on two global wars, on barbed wire, on concentration camps. And it does seem to me that built into the conception of European citizenship is both a solution to the problem of territorial state rivalry, which tore Europe uh, to pieces in that interwar period, but also something positive, pointing towards the vision, I think, of a globally, um, I've forgotten the phrase, globally orientated citizenship. Thank you. Um, GOP, we could uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, should we take a couple of quick questions and then I'll ask Biku to answer them and at the same time summarize the whole discussion and try and come to an end there. Um, please, two people down there. Could you keep them brief if you wouldn't mind? Um, identity is partially const Am I being heard okay? Identity is partially constituted by practices. Um, if these practices include illiberal aspects such as forced marriage or beating children to drive out the devil, um, does liberalism compromise with them or does it say we will go along with identity as long as it doesn't uh, have an illiberal side to it? Thank you. Hello. Uh, I thought I'd use my question to invite the chair to comment on the lecture, the book, or Bhikkhu Parekh's ideas in general. It says so. It says so in the instructions I saw them. He is entitled to speak and actually has a duty to speak. Well, we've only got a few minutes left. So um, do you want to say... Give your questions. Well, we can't, there's not enough time to take everybody, so I do apologize for those. Um, it's just a, a question, really, about linking really some concerns about the state and the status of the state. And I think sort of David's slightly over clammy 
um, embrace of the kind of public good with the state and to look backward and talk about uh, talking about Hannah Arendt and the right to have rights. And part of the problem was um, the state is the only thing that can enforce those human rights, yet at the same time it's, it's a body that can also take them away. So part of the development of these trans-border structures, which is what we're going into, is to actually say, actually, at some point you can trump the state in terms of rights for looking over a, a public good wider than the interests of its citizens. And at what point do we take into account the changing status of states and also their disarticulation from nations at the global political economic level as well as the disarticulation at the, the communal level beneath that? Thank you. Well, these are all very rich um, questions, but we haven't got much time, so would you like to say something very briefly? Yeah, okay, a few questions have come my way. I mean, uh, the, um, and, and just to reply to a couple of things John said, I mean, yes, of course, collective identities are much weaker now, and individual identities are much stronger, at least in, in developed liberal democratic societies. I mean, that's part of the point of, of liberal modernity and is the root of many of our freedoms. Um, and I'm not, not suggesting that we should go back um, to the 19th century or even the 1960s. Um, but um, the, the, the ideas of citizenship may be necessarily thinner than they were, but, and, and indeed, it, our nation states may no longer demand the ultimate sacrifice um, of, of fighting in, in, in armies, uh, but it is, to, as it were, the new version of that is that we pay 35 to 40 percent of our income to the state every year. That's what the new version of, of, uh, of, of marching off to war is. Uh, we pay it to the state and indirectly to, uh, to, to our fellow citizens. Um, of course, a lot of it comes back to us. And that, you know, that needs to be underpinned with something. I don't think enlightened self-interest is sufficient for that. That's, that's for another day. And I think the, um, on the question about the EU, of course the EU is important. Um, I, I'm, I'm very happy with, the, with, with our relationship with the EU. It's, a, it's essentially, as, as far as most people are concerned, it's essentially a technical um, um, inter, uh, intergovernmental association deals with complicated things to do with macroeconomics and trade, all of the most important things that people vote on in election times. The EU, you know, when it comes to election time, we vote on taxation policy, we vote on crime, we, we vote on, on education and health. The EU has nothing to do with these things. Um, you know, the EU is still a very, very secondary thing, and, and European identities uh, are, on, are not developing at all strongly. Um, and actually, people don't even go and, except when we have a situation like with the, the East European countries recently, where there's a huge gulf in, in wealth and income between states, people don't actually move. I mean, until the, the East European states joined, I think there was a 1.5% of then EU member states, citizens living in other uh, EU states. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. I mean, it was a big deal here briefly with, uh, with a lot of polls arriving and so on. I, just a fi final point. I mean, uh, one thing that hasn't really been raised um, and, uh, and wasn't in the book, Biku, but I think one, one point that's worth raising, I mean, going back to this idea of collective, weaker collective identities, um, is the... Is the you know, the, the sort of pathologies of identity and identity politics you don't really mention, the, the huge psychological temptation of identity um, at, at, in, a, in a sort of period of, um, you know, in a, in a disenchanted world, um, the sort of the feeling of warmth that you, that you can get, not from something as big and abstract as a nation state, but from a, you know, from a small um, group 
um, uh, that, that provide that, and, 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 and often the and often the grievances, justified or not, that go along with membership of that group. I mean, that 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 seems to be one of the sort of one of the, one of the problems in a way is that is that actually you know identity politics is almost compensating for the for the disappearance of the old thick collective identities of, of religion and nation that we associated with, with sort of pre-modernity. Really. Thank you, Biku. Could you attempt a sort of brief summary? And I'm sure you will share your thoughts with me privately, but wouldn't you like to share them with the audience? None at all? No, no, please. It's your, it's your book. Right. It's your night. You have to deliver in relation to all these criticisms. <laughs> all right. Well, look, uh, I've got three minutes in which to answer uh, four questions. Illiberal practices, should a liberal society tolerate or not tolerate? I mean, you have already loaded the question by describing these practices as illiberal. And therefore, the answer is contained in the question. Should a liberal society tolerate illiberal practices? The answer is obvious. It can't. But if you formulate it, the question differently, should you tolerate, why start calling a society liberal? I mean, I spent quite a bit of time in my rethinking multiculturalism, that one of the tricks that people play uh, in a political discourse is to start by saying we live in a liberal society, therefore certain principles should be followed. And I said, what does it mean to say we live in a liberal society? How can you characterize the whole society in terms of a single set of principles? There are many areas of our life where we don't set much store by liberalism, or liberalism understood in a certain way. There are other areas of life where liberal principles dominate the economy, and in our terms of our friendship, in terms of relation to our neighbors. I mean, we are not guided in terms of either individual choice, abrogations to parents. So what I would want to argue is that any society, especially as complex as ours, is bound to embody different set of overlapping principles in different areas of life. Therefore, you cannot simply reduce it to one set of principles, one description, and say, we live in a liberal society. Because once you concede that description, lots of other things would follow. Uh, so my answer to your question is, assuming that we agree on calling ourselves a liberal society, then obviously certain practices which are not just illiberal but morally unacceptable, you talk about forced marriages, female circumcision, I mean lots of things should not be tolerated, full stop. And I think to the credit of the Muslim community here, it must be recognized that uh, when these practices were abolished, I think polygamy was abolished in 1982, female circumcision in 1992 or thereabout, there was no protest. People recognized that the whole thing where uh, these practices were unacceptable, should not be continued. So I don't think the question really arises in that kind of uh, form. Certainly forced marriages, but even again, I mean, apart from honor killings and all that, everyone recognizes these marriages are unacceptable and should not be tolerated. And we must have the courage of our conviction. On uh, EU, I think I do spend about a page and a half in the book I, uh, talking about mediating identities between the national identity and the global identity. And I spent some time trying to explore why European Union has become important and whether it is possible to go to continue the project of building a European Union without necessarily sharing a European identity. 
do all organizations necessarily have to be sustained by a shared sense of identity? And I spent some time talking about it. So I would leave it at that. On the third question of uh, which David had raised, which I didn't have time to answer in the comments that both you and John made, I think my own concern uh, in this book as, in the, as uh, in the earlier one is if you look at the way in which the nation state has developed. You see, we, in the 17th century, we begin to see the rise of the modern state, purely political institution. Around the late 18th and early 19th century, people begin to ask certain kinds of questions as to how to sustain the state, whether it should have a common identity, common culture, and so on, and you begin to combine it with nation. And it's not until the middle of the 19th century that we begin to see the idea of the nation state, where state is engaged in the process of creating a common culture which all its citizens must absorb. I want to argue that we have now reached a point where, uh, and we got into trouble for using that phrase, but I borrow it from Habermas, where what we need is not so much a post-ethnic state, of course we do, but what we need is a post-national state. Is it possible to organize a state which is open, which recognizes that it is not possible for it to share a substantive common culture. You see, there is very important distinction to be made between a set of principles upon which we should agree. Let's say a certain body of human rights, certain basic principles of democracy, mutual respect. A minimum morality, political morality, is necessary in order to hold the community together. When people talk about common culture, they want to go further than this. Not just a set of moral principles, but a common culture. And here the assumption seems to be that there must be a certain broadly shared view of what human life is about, how we relate to each other, and so on. And I want to suggest that in our kind of society, which is open to external influences, where individuals form different views of what it is to live a good life, a common substantive culture is no longer available to us. I thought in Britain, Mrs. Thatcher's was the last attempt to create, a, or at least to impose, to define a certain kind of common national culture, and that immediately led to a number of predictable things. Education is the vehicle through which you communicate, transmit that culture, and therefore she went for education. Education has to have a certain kind of curriculum, and therefore a certain kind of curriculum was imposed upon schools. Common culture would require a certain kind of substantive view of national identity, and we are still living in the shadow of it when Gordon Brown talks about Britishness and other things. I'm very concerned, just as David is, and I share this with him profoundly, in spite of the different languages in which we might address the question, we do need some kind of social cohesion, or if you like, some kind of political unity in a society. I would see that in terms of a shared body of certain moral, uh, politically moral <laughs> principles and values, rather than a shared culture. Now, if you do that, then you are already thinking about a post-national state, not a state whose unity is derived from the unity of the nation, a state where the unity is derived from common subscription to a set of public institutions. I think uh, I should stop there. And David's point is absolutely right, uh, the last point, which is in a globalizing world, people feel lost. They want to ask themselves, who are we, where do I belong? And in some form, the desire to belong is, uh, 
for roots, if you like, although roots is a very uh, big word to use in this kind of context. Some kind of identification with people, some sense of belonging becomes extremely important. We need to recognize that. So globalization, again, this is my idea of a Hegelian mediated identity, recognizing the need for belonging, but at the same time grounding it in the, in a, in the inescapable situation of openness to other cultures and internal differences. Therefore, I think uh, if we ignore the larger context in which the belonging takes place, we are in danger that it might become inward-looking and narrow. The question, therefore, is how do you sustain these narrower identities without letting them become too inward-looking or, as they will say, pathological? And that, I thought, was what I was attempting to do, at least sketch it in the book. Well, I'd like to thank you, the audience, for making this very successful occasion. I think you would agree really terrific discussion, so please um, give a vote of thanks to our panel. Thank you.